Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, BladeDisgusting.com's Dead Pixels horror video game podcast, delivering a horrifying new episode every Monday. I'm one of your hosts, Jake Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Ball. And this week, we're discussing the interactive and butterfly effect-laced horror of Supermassive Games' 2015 title, Until Dawn, in which a group of friends meet up at a winter lodge one year after a tragedy that sent ripples through their group. But this bonding trip quickly takes a turn for the worst, as the group begins being stalked by someone or something. And as always, please be aware that we will be covering all manner of spoilers. But it isn't just Neil and I chatting about Until Dawn, as we're joined by BloodyDisgusting.com and Fangoria Magazine contributor Reina Cervantes. Reina, welcome to the show. Hi, hi, how's it going? Thank you both for having me. Absolutely, no it's our pleasure. And uh, I think that it's going to be great to kind of chat about a game that, you know, when I think about a lot of like console-specific interactive horror games, this comes up. And so I'm really interested to see kind of how our uh, supermassive games landed for you both. Yeah, it's... Uh... I still think, even to this day, this game is pretty underrated. I feel like not a lot of people played it. Yeah. Um, one, it being exclusive, and two, kind of super massive, not really having the reputation that they do now at the time. Yeah. I mean, then it was like you know, Sony's studios weren't like these big mega hype things they are now, and so and there's always this weird two tier system with Sony's promoting their studios. I mean, mm-hmm. for all the as they did this year for the new Ratchet and Clank the last one they just shoved it out there and didn't care if it did well or not and just sort of ended up selling by word of mouth and Until Dawn was very much like that um, it you know it was less hype than say The Order 1866 and yes yeah, so, and I suppose the development the hell of it you know where it came from being a PS move title on PS3 to being a PS4 title and all the changes that came into it kind of a miracle ever came out really mm. and looking anything as good as it does absolutely yeah and I think also just realizing that for the time period right it was this very kind of like niche horror game that it, from afar right and I think that it's not necessarily surprising that Sony maybe didn't uh, promote it as much as they did you know what I mean like you said Neil like the, the fact that it was even able to come out at all and to be as good as it ended up being was a, a, a miracle in and of itself and so it's definitely one of those games that when I think about horror games and within the last you know six or so years seven years it's the type of thing where you can see the audience coming to it late and kind of like playing catch-up almost because sure there were probably diehards and whatnot that were there day one because hey it's a console exclusive it's very very horror focused and it's you know, appealing to what from the masses might view as being more of a niche type of title. And so seeing sort of the rise of, you know, things like Twitch and people watching people play games and stuff, this seems like a game that probably benefited from that in the long run, maybe not initially when it was released, but I think that that probably played somewhat of a role in terms of it getting the popularity and then we'll get into it. But like where Supermassive Games has evolved from, 2015 with Until Dawn up until the present, I think, is uh, is going to be a fun part of our conversation. But, Reina, for you, uh, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you about Until Dawn that makes it uh, a memorable horror game an entire console generation later? Well, I, I want to wrap back around to Neil's point that at the same time, this was like being released when all the hype was on uh, Order 1886. Mm. And I remember being like the only one in my friend group that I was like, Oh, I'm gonna buy Until Dawn instead of that game because that seems like I'll get. I know I hate using the phrase, but it seems like I'll get more of my money's worth from that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, but 
Also, just because it was horror, like, naturally, I was gravitated towards it. But I remember playing through it the first time, and I felt that all of the gameplay mechanisms and the design philosophies behind it were done really smart. Because I had never really played a game like that beforehand, unless you would consider something like Heavy Rain. Yeah. And even then... Yeah, that's... It's probably closer to Telltale stuff than it is to Heavy Rain now, isn't it? Like, I suppose, when you think about it. Yeah, yeah, which I hadn't I hadn't played a Telltale game either, so I didn't even know there was, like, this whole genre of games <laughs> like that. I was just like, oh, it's Heavy Rain, but a horror movie, and obviously I thought it was done better than Heavy Rain. Um, yeah, I think his- history's been kinder to, to Until Dawn <laughs> than as Heavy Rain. So. Yeah, for real, because especially you don't have to do that three-button hole thing that Heavy Rain does. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I remember just thinking, like, how great it was, and I actually did, like, I turned on the move portion of the controls, like how when you <laughs> move the controller, the flashlight moves, yeah. and I remember just being astounded with it, and then the fact that it had recognizable actors. I just thought it was a great product overall, and I was the one to turn my friends onto it, going like, no, no, you need to, like, stop playing the order. You need to play <laughs> this one. Because this one will blow your minds with, like, the butterfly effect system and the story it tells. I I, I, I can't really put into words. I just really love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the best thing, isn't it? When something you really get into and enjoy, it's often just too much to even comprehend it and say what you mean with it. Because it just, like, I remember, like, trying to talk about Metal Gear Solid 2 like twice on two different podcasts and both times <laughs> I, I don't remember a word I said it's like it's just because it's just it all just sort of blurts out it's like yeah I just really like it 20 times over but it's it's a great feature of any game if that's the way you end up feeling about it yeah for me Until Dawn was one of those games that I was able to sell my friends group on it who don't necessarily care about horror or they don't have the same appreciation of horror that I do because It was the thing where we were in a dorm playing it and we could pass the controller around because we would break up with the different chapters and let one person play these characters and then hand the controller over. And it was this really interesting sort of co-op experience almost that, like couch co-op experience that I don't know if they intended it for it to be played like that, but it just, there's this great communal aspect to the game that I found was really surprising. And of course it helps when the game looks as gorgeous as it does. And I think it still holds up pretty remarkably well in terms of not only the overall production value but just the way it looks the way it handles dynamic camera angles and things and i mean we'll get into it more but kind of just the approach to a lot of maybe familiar tropes of horror from the outset but then they're done in a way that it doesn't feel like it is just more of this kind of retreading on common ground that's not being evolved on in some way or maybe it's just very self-aware so it begins with like a lot of the sort of tr- character tropes that you would expect, but it plays into them so well that it's something that actually ends up being more entertaining, especially for, you know, like I said, yeah. people that maybe are not as in love with the horror genre as uh, the three of us are. That's interesting about it, too, because I feel like it's one of those games from that era that Sony was putting out that it kind of doesn't even need a remaster. Mm. I mean, uh, no. Like you said, like so much of it holds up, and even like on the next generation systems, like PS5, it runs like at a locked like 60 frames. Because yeah. I remember that being like the only issue was that like you would get some like slideshow aspects <laughs> on the original system, but even then, like on the newer consoles where like textures load up instantly, frame rate stable, it's like 
they didn't re- they don't need to remaster it like six years later it still holds up on like modern systems yeah I think maybe the only thing that you could sort of go iffy on is like the facial captures on and off in places but I think that again I've said this before on the podcast mm-hmm. stuff like that ages well in a way with horror because it kind of lends itself to the whole story being told like Peter Stormare's whole thing is just wild and it works so well for the character he is because it's everything he does looks weird and odd and deranged and it's not just his face it's the the you know the capture being done of him gives it this even more absurd quality exactly and it and it was kind of like a trailblazer at the time because like a trailblazer in the aspect of like oh well the actors they got were like known but they weren't super mm. run well known Rami Malek has the main role in this game <laughs> it, it still astounds me to this day and it's like that's Oscar winner Rami Malek yeah. it's right here yeah. just <laughs> just casually in a Sony horror game <laughs> yeah in the same game I mean yeah with the same game as the cheerleader from Heroes and guys mm-hmm. and Peter Storm it's just Odd, and yeah, I know they've sort of continued that along. I know they originally wanted um, Sean Ashmore to be in it, uh, who then ended oh. up being, he ended up being in Man of Medan anyway. Mm. But um, yeah, yeah. That, so that would have been like proper, like let's bring back the two thousands in this horror game to make it feel more like a two thousands horror movie. And, uh, Did the Sean Ashmore thing not happen because he was doing Quantum Break at the time? I think so. Probably, I believe so because it would have probably been about that time mm-hmm. in development. Because it was, yeah, it was, yeah, that was like, yeah, yeah, that would have been about then, but then so, yeah, because uh, Microsoft had their hooks in him with the TV series and everything <laughs> attached to that <laughs> that like nobody watched. Oh man, you did, that that would have worked now in in a post control world. That would have ended up working for him. Oh, it it would have worked too because like I think at the time they didn't really like. This is a little tangent about Quantum Break, but like. Mm. They couldn't stream, like, the episodes of the TV show. Oh, yeah. So you had to download, like, these massive <laughs> files. So, like, everybody would just skip the TV show aspect of that game. Yeah, that was a big problem. That and their backpedaling from Microsoft's whole idea for that generation, basically, involving TV. It sort of <laughs> went out to past just straight away. That's a shame. But maybe they can try it again. Yeah, hope, hopefully one day they'll uh, they'll return to that. But I think in terms of like the celebrities that they use for the facial uh, capture and everything, and obviously the voice performances to go along with that, I do definitely <laughs> agree that like the cast that they pick, they're just famous enough that you know who they are. But it, I found, especially on this last replay, um, that it wasn't to the degree that it was super distracting. Um, I think that that was always my worry when I was going into this more recent one. I was like, well, is this going to be like a real standout and is it going to distract from the intention behind that character or these sort of like more emotional moments? But I found that again, like it, they do such a good job of bolstering what is sometimes a weaker aspect of games and maybe horror games more specifically, like the voice acting is not always on par with what you might expect from, even if it's a triple a game, but for this, I think it does such a good job of, again, like I said earlier, in terms of the more, trope-heavy characters or some of the more trope-heavy dialogue and things like that, they sell it in a way that doesn't make it come off as being as cheesy as maybe it should be, even though there are some lines like, uh, what is he say? One of the characters says something along the lines of like, I'm gonna I'm gonna punch his face off or something like that, <laughs> which there's some fantastic <laughs> lines of dialogue in this that gets sold in a way that uh, that just works in terms of this 
sort of horror aesthetic of the entire game and more specifically like a lot of the B-movie uh, influence that I think went into this. And, you know, we've been talking now about it for 10 minutes and we haven't mentioned that uh, Larry Fesden, who not only has an appearance in the game itself, but he was one of the co-writers uh, along with uh, Graham Resnick. Um, for you, Neil, how does Until Dawn succeed as being sort of a love letter to genre maybe that other horror titles that have tried similar things haven't succeeded on quite as well? I think it became clear when I spoke to Supermassive a few years later, ago uh, with uh, when Man and Madame was about to come out and just you know talking about how they were building those games as well and how even Until Dawn where it's you know they pick something in the genre try to do something different with it try to subvert it and yeah this you can see it all in Until Dawn you know mm. the, the blueprint as much as they try to distance that from the future projects in terms of trying to say no no this is a different thing it's like no you know, we know you're trying to just do the sequels but <laughs> it's you know they have a clear love of horror you know a big love you know it's like you know, that you know, I know the guys running it you know read bloody disgusting and the likes of that so it, they're well versed in everything going on in that world and here it just seems like they've picked a time and place of horror that works for a lot of people I think it's that sort of 2000s run of, of like slashers mm-hmm. and then going into that sort of meta sort of new meta sort of thing we had with stuff like uh, Cabin in the Woods I mean even the cast construct is similar if you think about it now because you, you have like an actor who's going to end up being bigger you know Hemsworth there Malik here you have like an established actor in some sort of savory role so Sigourney Weaver Pierce Stormare sort of thing here and yeah there's that to it but yeah you know they really go heavy on the everyone's so desperate to have sex and do all the great things and it's all about that and almost to the point of absurdity which is always the best in any slasher based you know film mm. is it? you know, of course they're going to try and get their end away no matter how dangerous anything it's going to be but um, so it, it just understands that and doesn't try to be anything else you know it, it understands the genres it's working in and has fun with it you know and gets away with it a bit more because you are the director you know mm. you are basically deciding how this movie is going to play out and exactly what how these characters are going to come across and that's where they then start doing those interesting things with those characters where oh yeah they seem like this character or that you know this is the slutty one this is the bitchy one and this is the cocky jock guy and then it will you know you get to learn more about them and you can shape their conversation a certain way and you can make them almost an entirely different person and it still fits because you know so little about them going in and that's the great magic about it and what makes it so Replayable and what ends up making it a great multiplayer experience mm. is the fact that you inform the choices of that character. You become that character whilst also directing them. Yeah. And I think that that's the marvelous thing about any of those games they've made. You know, with, with that sort of dynamic, is that no matter what else you can say about them, they nail that. How about you? For you, Reina, what are some of the uh, the elements that really allow Until Dawn to shine as this? Very clear love letter to uh, to genre, maybe more so than others. Well, damn, 
Neil Neil nailed it on the head with the cabin in the woods comparison because I had that loaded up and ready to go and I was like fuck um, but yeah I, I definitely feel like to me personally it it played to like because I'm the type of horror fan that I like like the trashy like slasher movies and at the time I didn't know the meta thing going in so I'm like oh cool it's just like you know all these kids are gonna bang I'm gonna make them all like I'm gonna make them all bang it's a horror movie um no out of context that sounded wrong but um but I definitely feel like it played up the hammy aspects in the first half to the point that like once it's in it then briefly turns into like almost a saw Mm -hmm. film and then it goes full blown meta and at the time I was just kind of mind blown um Especially because my first playthrough, my first playthrough was like, I'll never forget it because I got to the point where like all the characters are surviving and then it gets to that final standoff (laughs) in the room with the, with the spoiler revealed the Wendigo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, hold the controller completely still. (laughs) My dog, my dog had bumped my elbow (laughs) And Hayden Panettiere just gets, like, decimated on screen, like, right before my eyes. <laughs> and it's, like, one of those games that, like, the save feature, it's, like, implemented, like, in a way it's constantly auto-saving, mm-hmm. so yeah. you can't backtrack. Yeah. And it just, like, ruined my entire playthrough. <laughs> oh, but I felt... But to me, that even stuck out more in my mind. It was like, oh, the main final girl can fucking die in this movie she can be the only one that dies yeah i never i had never really seen like i always criticize games that offer the illusion of choice Mm -hmm. and don't really like don't really like land on it like i talked in depth about this about cyberpunk recently it's like you can give me all these choices but if they lead to one ending it's like why bother and until dawn is one of those things where it's like every time i played it i made different choices and i had different outcomes Mm -hmm. and that really stands out in my mind of like even more so than heavy rain that like everybody who plays this is going to get a different experience from it like like i almost want to like replay it and do a run of seeing how fast i can kill everybody (laughs) (laughs) that that was why i was trying to do my last one (laughs) before starting this so just but it's knowing and again that speaks to that whole director side of it Mm. is that you're trying to figure out what will trigger this what will trigger that person to die 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 i mean like uh jesse isn't it and she almost almost always dies first every time I play it. Mm. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing wrong there, but it seems to be the way of it. But yeah, it's <laughs> like, <laughs> but I don't want to look into the secrets of like, oh, if you do this, this will happen. It's like because I feel like the game offers those clues to you anyway, and it's like, if you really wanted to do it a certain way, you could. Mm-hmm. It's like I, I I kind of enjoy it that way. But you're very very right there because with the choices mattering more because even in that sort of subgenre of like choice-based narrative games like the Telltale were some, you know, big on this where it was like you're always going to come to the same conclusion it's just uh, you, you have to make those little moments count but it's really just about making you feel better or worse uh, while still getting to the same conclusion here as you say it's like oh no shit anything can happen it's chaos you know and you can push and prod each individual person and I think there is where it is especially great is because you are controlling an entire cast at different mm-hmm. at different points 
it's you know you aren't just making choices for you you know mm. like you normally do with those sort of games like you say with cyberpunk you, you know you are effectively just making a decision that benefits or you overall and here it's like no no no. it's like what i do it's not really about me it's about them and what i can do to them and <laughs> you know for a horror fan uh, you know especially a slasher fan that's like that's like a dream idea mm. I wanted to add that, like, I think this game does the whole, like, oh, you started a new thread thing, like, really smart, because in mm. Telltale, it's always like, oh, so-and-so will remember mm. that, and it's, like, re- achieve, like, meme status at this point, <laughs> whereas in this one, like, you'll just be casually playing, and all of a sudden, that butterfly symbol appears, yeah. and you're like, oh, shit, what did <laughs> what I do? I do? <laughs> yeah. yeah, what are the consequences of that? And, like, it doesn't tell you. Right. It doesn't tell you. Like, you have to, like, I believe, go into, it's been a while since I played it, but you have to go like into a menu with like all the different threads yep. yeah you can always review those things but then again like to your point it's the type of thing where i love the fact that you get a little indication but it's just ominous every time it pops up because i mean like what you had said in terms of a telltale game generally it, somebody is going to have a negative reaction or not like back a decision that you're going to make later on when the group comes together yeah. to confer or whatever but in this it could be anything right it could be something very inconsequential or it could be the, a player or a character's fate uh, in the next few minutes or maybe in an hour or something like that which I love and it, definitely to your point again like the idea that there's not just one or two like it's not a good ending and a bad ending right there's yeah. a, mo- a variety of different experiences that you can have which ultimately stems into my every time i play it i'm just i'm furthermore reminded like there's no real wasteful playthroughs of this because sure i might have a tendency to want to side or uh, keep alive a certain character that i like more but then at the same time if i choose to just like throw a curveball or a wild card in there especially when you're playing with other people like i had mentioned passing the controller around everybody's gonna have a different opinion so seeing each of us kind of influence the story in a different way and all of a sudden somebody might be like well actually fuck that character i'm gonna have them be uh, either killed or like put them in harm's way to save one that i prefer Every single time that gives us this new experience, with, and it's largely sort of just anecdotal between our friends group and whatnot, but it makes this game replayable in a way that I really love. And it doesn't feel, again, like, oh, well, this is a gr- like two or three different paths, basically, that you will inevitably find yourself in. I genuinely feel like you could play this game as many times as you want, and you get an experience that feels fresh in a way that it did in the previous time especially when you th- start thinking about those collectibles you can learn more about the lore of the world which the game never shoves down your throat which i love because that really helps like the pacing in the long term which i want to come back to later but also just in terms of like finding the totems applying new meaning to those totems when you kind of start diverging off of your previous paths it just it gives this game that slasher movie so, like the conversation around slasher movies that I have with my buddies in the same way where like once in a while some will watch a movie and somebody be like oh did you notice this and I'm like oh I completely missed that and having a horror game that could have that same sort of conversation around it rather than just like highlighting the two or three moments that the developers knew everybody would be talking about it's kind of like getting to have those conversations and be like oh well maybe I'll I'll go a different route with this character and unearth some new information again about the character or the world itself. It it just, it makes this game replayable in a way that I seldomly find a lot of horror games are. And it's interesting because I feel like 
I feel like Supermassive weren't really that well known at the time. Like, no. if I recall, they were mostly known for like Little Big Planet DLC yeah. at the time. <laughs> um, so to come off of this into planning this at the time kind of ambitious PlayStation Move title for the PS3 and kind of diverting that. And if I recall, when the Move title was announced, it had like no like name actors. Like it. It didn't have like any well knowns at all. So when they re revealed it and it's like, hey, we got a full cast, playable entirely with the controller, it's on Sony's new PS4 system. It you really look at it and you're like, they got super ambitious with it, and I think they really cut their teeth on the type of games they wanted to make. Um I haven't played the Dark Anthology films and just because out of like worry that like none of them will compare to this particular one. I mean, that's that's probably true to be honest. I and the, I think it just comes because from the fact that Until Dawn is, you know, it's fresh ambition. It the story behind it, you know, and the fact that it ever got made at all and it changed so much from its initial beginnings it is. It makes it special and different, and the fact that it got underlooked, you know, at the time as well, makes it even more of a cult thing. And I think that shows every time I've ever covered the Dark Pictures games. Um, you get people on Twitter like, "Oh, they're making these games by the people who made Until Dawn," and you get it with every bloody game, every single one. You know, mm-hmm. what free free in now, and we still get it where people are like, "Oh, it's the Until Dawn people." Oh yeah, I'll check that out. Like, it's only been three of them (laughs) shit I didn't I didn't really notice it until House of Ashes got announced and I was like oh that's cool it's it's a Until Dawn people it's got Ashley Tisdale I was like that's cool I'll play it and it's like oh shit it's the third one Uh, I should probably I should probably catch up on these (laughs) yeah I mean the beauty of those is that they are all separate stories the only tying in thing is like the Twilight Zone style presenter that each thing is the same but you know the key takeaway from that, and it wasn't revealed till we went to the first sort of press event for the first one, was the fact that now they actually have the multiplayer. They'd learned that very thing we were talking about, where it seems like it's made for it, uh, is that that's what they wanted to do you know, with these games. They wanted them to be actual multiplayer, where two of you could be controlling a different character at, different, at the same time. You know, and that, that's a cool way of doing it. And they also implemented the, the pass the pad mode where it's like, oh, you, know, you basically can choose between you who's going to be this character, who's going to be that character, blah, 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 and go around. Um, yeah, I mean, not to go too deep into those games, but the first two suffer from one tiny hitch, which is that, you know, they don't have the conviction to sort of make their stories as absurd as Until Dawn. You know, they don't go into, no, there are monsters here. They, they, they try and get an out to say, that. The, oh, what's really happening? Is this real? Is that real? Which I, I believe they fixed with House of Ashes where they went back to it and said, no, no, fuck it, you are actually fighting monsters this time and it actually is, like, consequence-based. But, you know, the spirit's there, to be fair, in all of them. And I think with people, it is just, great you know they are great games to play with other people i only ever played the first two or three hours of man of uh, Medan, and it was the type of thing where immediately 
I was kind of taken aback because it lacked a lot of the intimacy that Until Dawn has, right? It's very, Until mm. Dawn, of course, is that very isolated kind of shining setup where you're basically snowed in in this, what is a lodge and whatnot. And then the first hour or so of Man in the Den feels like, you're, it's kind of, it kind of felt like Uncharted. Like you start on a boat and then you have to like go diving down and going into this relic of an old bomber and all of these things. And what I also remember is, is that they almost flesh out the characters too much from those tropes so that way when it comes time to control them you kind of feel like you're pushed in a certain direction or at least I did because yeah. you know so much more about them than you ever really felt like you knew about Until Dawn uh, and that's a big element that I think really works for Until Dawn of course is that in the simplicity of the overall premise and the absurdity like Neil said and how the characters are so sort of residing to these tried and true uh, characterizations of the sort of slasher tropes and whatnot it feels like the player has a lot more organic freedom in the decisions they make because it's like well I know one thing about this person maybe I could go against that whereas in Man of Medan I found that I knew so much about them by a certain point that I was like if, if they do this other decision it's so out of character that all of a sudden this story takes on hmm. it, it doesn't take on a new meaning but it's just like it just kind of feels like I'm playing against the script which then felt very just distracting to me because then I was like well would this character ever have really done that based on what they are essentially telling you in the first hour or two of the game? Sure, I think uh, the fact that they are very anthology-based as well and they're done as to be shorter games than mm. Until Dawn was, uh, means that obviously you have to kind of push things at more of a filmic pace. And the other part of that is that they kind of rely on the idea that someone else might be playing with you. So... While you may have an idea of how you believe those characters should behave, the, the fact that someone else can come in and subvert that by playing a character you think you know what they would do um, differently can fuck up your own decisions. It's like suddenly it's not just what you think, it's what someone else thinks. It's like whilst you're doing it, rather than just like, oh, pass the pad, well, this person's going to play this character like that and I'm going to play this one like that. We all know that because we're all here. When it is that sort of online two-player mode, where you know you can be even with a stranger just doing it, you suddenly, it, you know, that's the bit I think where it improves upon the original idea, is that you suddenly now have this thing where it feels more real, you know, because you don't really know how the other person thinks, you don't really know how they're going to act in a crisis situation, and. It, suddenly everything you think you know about that person character goes out the window when they decide to leg it and leave you to die basically or whatever you know and that was one of my favorite things about discussing it after playing the first time was just this sort of like well what did you do there to make this happen to me there and it's like and just finding out all these little nuances from game to game to game between different people and it was like that was cool and again I think supermasses suffer from the fact that they're not huge huge you know and they're not going to gain the traction needed for it to work and then the people that really would appreciate it and you know go in for them until dawn is there and that's always going to be in the way because if people want until dawn those games aren't that exactly for sure and it's something that i think in revisiting until dawn again most recently i'm just and you know reina mentioned this in terms of the fact that 
they were so ambitious with it and you would think that this is like their second their first their second or third horror game just in terms of the level of production value the understanding of their implementation of again like all of the sort of horror things that we've mentioned already but also just never allowing any singular environment to really ever feel boring even though if you were to describe them it's like well it's a long creepy corridor it's this kind of like inside of the lodge interior that you've seen time and time again but that playing with the dynamic camera angles is really something that feels very classical to horror while also again it has this production value that is so stellar and so much above what I would anticipate from the first time a developer that's making a horror game would really Maybe not so much like whether or not they have the capability to do it, but just the understanding that if you're going to do something that so heavily leans into elements of horror that have already been established or they've become really like the staples, you can't just rely on the fact that they're staples. Like you have to do something to them to make them hold up over the course of what is roughly like a seven, eight hour experience and whatnot. And that was something that, again, like just replaying it over the week, it was something that it made the game feel fresh in a way especially when going back and making new decisions because sometimes you might explore an environment in a different way with a different character and just always having that level of polish and you know i think from the outset having like that intro with that song uh, i think it was oh death performed by amy van rokel um Mm. and like that blew me away because i completely forgot that and that feels like just this massive like a it just feels like this massive set piece moment that you would expect from a much more experienced AAA developer um, that, again, like they realize that if you don't nail that sort of cinematic quality to go along with it, the game, I would probably experience the game a lot differently if that attention to blurring the line between like interactive and feeling very much like a classical horror movie in a lot of sense. Yeah, and weirdly, as much as we've been calling it like a horror movie, it's this almost TV-like setup that it has, you know, where it does the previously and it breaks up the chapters, is one of the things I, I'm a real sucker for games that do that sort of thing. Where they, they, I mean, and that was one of the things that really sort of endeared me to the game to begin with. It was not so much that it was trying to be a slasher game, but more that it was doing that episode by episode thing and really making it work and. I suppose my only criticism is on that is that it feels like they didn't go all in and make it like that. I mean, now that would have been like his episode one, his episode two, his episode three over months and months. I mean, that's basically what Telltale were doing, and it feels like Sony looked at that and were like, "Well, we don't want to be dragging this out any longer, given how long we've put into this." So the whole game, and which is good, I think for the way it ended up turning out I think. but I, I always wonder what it would have been like if it had been more like a TV series style thing especially now that you know there are so many slasher style TV shows you know out there that to sort of crib from yeah I, I think it was a good move you know and having a, a, a theme song and things like that and would have been nice for each episode I think Alan Wake did that as well didn't it a bit yeah you know, where it had that sort of TV feel which again I just think this kind of has the little Alan Wake in it you know because you know, a lot of it just feels that way but yeah it's one of those things we don't see a lot in games that try you know, especially bigger budget ones is where they are trying to be films first and foremost and 
the ones that aren't are trying to be books on film, you know, and then there's very few that do this, you know, where they're trying to push it more towards that sort of televisual, here's a bunch of stuff happening in this hour, and then here's an, the next hour is the next thing. So yeah, it goes a bit 24 by way of slasher, you know, which is cool. I can only think of, like, the only other game that does, like, the TV episode format besides, like, Alan Wake and this is, like, um, oddly enough, Resident Evil has done that with uh, Revelations 2. Mm. Yeah, which, again, I really liked the idea of. Yeah, yeah. The, the chapter format, it literally has a recap, like, previously <laughs> on Resident Evil Res- Revelations 2. Um, yeah. You'll have to excuse my silence. I was buying a House of Ashes ah. because <laughs> once I heard that it was, like, more closer to this one i was like okay that's the one i'm gonna jump in on <laughs> and then i go to buy it and like the first review for it from a user is like best their best game since until dawn and i was like oh perfect sold <laughs> there you go <laughs> um but i do yeah i do think that almost like in a weird way until dawn was so ambitious and so new at the time hmm. that it like kind of ruins the rest of their games and their output that they do because it's like oh like it was like they struck while the iron was hot for like this new type of experience and now that we have like multiples of those yeah I think yeah that, that's it suffered on two fronts the the, the whole lengthy delays and changes to the original format whilst beneficial you know hurt them in Sony's eyes Sony when you look at their track record Sony's seen clearly seen them as one of those studios that just helped out rather than being the big a big studio and those studios usually get a chance to have a go at doing something uh, you think of Sony Bend with Days Gone and you know, similar in terms of like reaction in some way but uh, that seems to have more of a fan base bizarrely um, but here this was something that they really took that shot made it something, the best out of it and then got told that oh yeah you can do more of this universe uh, there'll have to be VR games and like that and then they'll both have to be terrible um, as a result uh, okay Rush of Blood was okay but it, like Inpatient was just like I didn't need to know any of this and it just feels pointless to have it and then they did that Rainbow Six style game Bravo team that was just horrendous isn't there like a rumor that like this the the kind of like low sales of this and uh just the backlash from uh order eighteen eighty six wasn't there a rumor that supermassive and ready at dawn were like supposed to be acquired by Sony around this time, but like probably because of like how both of those games before performed? Like, like you said, Sony just probably like regulated them to those VR experiences. Yeah. And I think seeing how Insomniac and uh, Sony Ben have sort of been able to make games in a different environment now, you know, where Insomniac did well enough with that Ratchet and Clank remake that it did enough numbers, it reviewed very well, uh, that they got another shot and they get given other stuff. And same with Sony Bend, you know, as much as Days Gone is a very divisive game, it sold well, it has a fan following, you know, because we are now in an era where Sony can push even the most middling stuff and make it sound like it's the best thing ever. You know, Yuck. Where, yeah. <laughs> Whereas then, you know, 
Until Dawn would very much have been in that, you know, thing where you could se- you could sell it for what it was and go, here's this cool horror game that you know multiple choice stuff. But I, I think it came at that point where that kind of audience was already getting sick of the idea of choice-based games like that because they were like, oh, they're all the same, they all do the same thing like that, and it, which is a shame because it, it's not the same as those, right? I think also just horror games in general were in like kind of a bad way. Mm. Like, think about it. This is still the fallout of like Resident Evil Six. Yes, very much so. I mean that that killed horror games for like a minute there, up until like Resident Evil Seven. I want to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean this is it. We were, we said this a few times on this podcast. It's just like most of the last decade was just big studios saying no horror doesn't work, and so big studios would just make horror things less and less and less horror based and we ended up with stuff like Resident Evil 6 and <laughs> then they sort of turn around and go I don't know why this isn't selling as well okay that's sold <laughs> that's sold but you know what I mean Fuck, I don't I don't back, know why back. <laughs> 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 it's like, I don't quite understand why the people don't like this as much you know, like um, critically speaking and yeah I mean it's amazing they actually listened after that with, with Resident Evil because that sold gangbusters. That, <laughs> that like, game sold well. That's like what Capcom's like third best-selling game, I think. I know, and it's been a relief to see seven like sort of eclipse it since. And it's like, but Christ, for a while there, seeing that up there with five as like the best-selling games in the series was like, oh, that's no, yeah. come on, come on. <laughs> I was like, like, stop, <laughs> stop buying these games, even though I buy them every time they get re-released. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's, but. That, at that point, I just do it because like I'm a big RE fan. But I, yeah. I thought I thought it was pretty alarming when I go look at like series sales and it's like Resident Evil Six is still up there, and I was like, "Holy shit, that game sold a lot!" No mm. wonder like they thought horror was dead for a little bit in like the game sphere. Mm. Yeah, but it, and it is kind of crazy that Capcom really looked at that and like actually listened to like fan and critical response because they could have easily gone, "Ah, fuck it!" Like apparently. I, I don't know if it was confirmed, but there were design documents for, like, the original, like, pitch for, like, Resident Evil 7, and it was going to be a big, bombastic, like, action sequel <laughs> until they, like, ripped it apart and went, like, nah, we're going <laughs> to reel that back and rebuild it. <laughs> yeah, for yeah. real. They, they clearly did a, a full about turn on, on that. And I think we said before as well that it's majorly to do with the fact that Whilst the big companies were avoiding horror, you know, smaller ones were embracing it and giving people what they wanted and changing the face of it. I mean, we wouldn't have got PT and then wouldn't have got Resident Evil 7 had, you know, the likes of Frictional Games not done what they were doing, you know. And it, it proved to be a big part, you know, that indie horror sphere and, sphere and then having the whole YouTube Twitch phenomenon of people playing those games just to dramatically shriek and pull their hands up at every tiny little jump scare uh, made it horror relevant again you know and yeah suddenly they took notice yeah and also like I remember right around this time of like until dawn like 2015 era I remember uh, Capcom like for the first time had re-released the Resident Evil remake mm-hmm and to digital platforms and that was received super well mm. so I think it was just kind of like 
I, I know I said super massive. We're like striking while the iron was hot, creative wise. Yes, but like industry wise, I think they were a little like before the curve, mm. before it really got popular again. Um, yeah. And I think that as a whole kind of like, because whenever I talk with somebody about Until Dawn, it's like, oh, it's that one PS4 horror game that like nobody played, <laughs> and it was like. It's like, yeah, it still is to this day. Like, they give it away for free in the PS Plus collection Mm -hmm. on PS5, and I don't really hear about anyone rediscovering it. Like you say, Neil, I I more hear about people going like, oh, Days Gone is pretty good. I'm like, stop playing that that awful game. Uninstall that shit. That game that never ends. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my, okay tangent about that <laughs> i i think that is one of the massive problems with that game is that it tries to tell this emotional like not even like a horror story like that game no. is like not like scary or anything no. it's more um, sun's anarchy than dawn of the dead or anything like that yeah which is weird first and foremost and it tries to tell this emotional story but it's like oh here it's like also a bloated 60 hour open world game with a map that's not really kind of big enough to justify it right yeah and a rule set that is basically like ps2 free era uh, you know that's like stuff that we've moved on from it's like in most games yeah it's nice if you get a throwback idea but when, when your control system and your mission system is basically hey you remember grand theft auto 3 this is the mission system <laughs> right. right here I, I hate making the comparison like also but like gameplay wise with like the stuff and the action like i, I know people are gonna rip on me for this but i'm like <laughs> every everything this game does the last of us does better mm. and like yeah. yeah not even close like it does it like substantially better yeah which is a shame because I, I was really up for it as a game idea. Uh, I thought, I yeah, this is cool, but you know, it was, was a better game. Like, where, yeah, where the fuck is Siphon Filter? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I think a big problem that that game has is that the amount of freedom it gives you, and when you have that supposedly unparalleled freedom, then not only does the main plot and narrative and things like that take a hit because you could go fuck off in any direction for two hours at a time, and then you're like, oh yeah. I could do a story mission now, like you lose that pacing, but also like even something like Dead Rising that gave you that freedom, you still had the parameters of the mall itself and you were only ever moving between typically like two big main areas, two or three at a time. But when you can just drive around or uh, bike around all you want and there's no real restraints to anything, time or otherwise, it's like, well, it's easy to get off the beaten path of that plot. Whereas it loses a lot of that kind of emotional texture or the immediacy of that. It doesn't feel important anymore because it's like, well, I can just do whatever I want for, I could go off in this direction for three hours and then come back to it. And it's like, Oh, it's still there waiting for me. Whereas of course, something like the last of us, which is much more linear, you're on that path always. And even if you come to one of those more wide open areas, like it's still paced to the degree where nothing really, you never allowed to, lose the immediacy that that narrative has and that sort of main drive that that has which obviously is what makes that work so well amongst other things you you just summed up perfectly why dead rising 4 <laughs> is like absolute garbage yes. <laughs> could not agree um, more on that <laughs> Cap- capcom really needs to go back to the drawing board on that one because mm. i i think the only one that like main capcom did was um the first one i don't think they did two three or four because i think blue castle mm-hmm. took over which was yeah. a western studio so 
I think it'd be really interesting if Capcom could do like a Resident Evil 7 type Dead Rising reboot. Yeah, you got to think also like with Dead Rising 4 after 3, which was very mixed. I haven't played it myself, but it was just very mixed, I believe, compared to 1 and 2. It's the idea that it's like, well, what was hot at that time? Well, open world and how can they kind of just get people in there? And, you know, they have that sort of the the carrot and the stick of, oh, you have true unparalleled freedom now, whereas before you just sort of had freedom. And I guess from a marketing perspective to the masses, that sounds great. But in actuality, when you get your hands on it, it kind of just lacks for a majority of reasons. But in that being the main reason, like it just it lacks so much of that intimacy of the first two and even going from dead rising one to two of course the scale got much bigger and thanks to you know uh them better uh, understanding of the code and just the scope and everything it still felt like a natural progression whereas when i got mm. to dead rising four i was like well this just feels like the scope has gotten so large that it's lost almost everything that i enjoyed about the previous two games which is funny because that game was entirely marketed of like, oh, it's the Dead Rising you know yeah, and love. Yeah. It's back in the mall. Frank is back. And then you play the game and you're like, this is fucking nothing like Dead Rising 1. It, it's like when a studio gets the rights to a, a, a really nostalgia-inducing movie and then they make a new one yeah. that, that completely misses the point of everything and think and just does surface level stuff it's like oh yeah well it's all about just doing all the comedy stuff right and it's like no that that's not why dead rising is love that, that's, <laughs> you are, and uh, not to mention chainsaw 3d comes to mind <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> even yeah. though i love that movie but that feels like a movie that like a studio got their hands on and like eh, it's got leather face and a chainsaw like yeah. they'll eat up whatever <laughs> <laughs> But it, 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 it's weird kind of like the trajectory of like where horror games have come and gone in the last 20 years and like yeah. until dawn is like literally kind of smack dab in the middle of it of like, well, it was like too early, but it was also kind of too late to be yeah, the classic. Yeah, in so many ways. Yeah. It was coming out in this era where we got all these Western-developed Silent Hill games that were trash and bombastic Resident Evil games. Like, of like now that I really look at it, like, sure, I played it at the time because I was a horror fan, but I could totally see people back then going like, oh, horror games suck and suck. I'm not even going to bother with that game. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it was the same with uh, Alien Isolation the year before. It just... You know, the people that loved it loved it because of what it was. They wanted an alien game, and then that that sort of gave it word of mouth appeal that made it a cult hit. You know, it didn't end up being like this mega success. And it is again just to do with that whole big studio idea of knowing horror games they don't sell. You know, as simple as that. It's like, and ironically, there's another game that being IP based now would be like gangbusters gangbusters yeah you can sell the shit out of this thing and but yeah it, it's unfortunate that so many games ended like that ended up sort of not getting the recognition they deserved because they were born at the wrong time if you will it's also the type of game that I think might have been done a disservice by just like the popularity of something like Twitch because again like talking about how cinematic it looks and everything it's like sure you have all these varying paths and whatnot but I could see a lot of people especially again it hurts the fact that they don't have a history with horror right so they don't have that sort of reputation or the pedigree that somebody like Capcom does which is maybe why right out the gate more people were more willing to go into something like five or resident evil five or six even if it ended up 
being uh, less than stellar entries in uh, in our collective opinions, it sounds like. But I think that in terms of like Until Dawn, it could be one that people that are maybe on the fence about horror or don't necessarily have a great love of horror, they might see gameplay of that and be like, well, I could just watch somebody play it on Twitch and it's the same thing. And that's an oversimplification, I think, of the mechanics of this game, yeah. which are very simple. Obviously, it's like mostly quick time events and the staples of interactive uh, games and whatnot being that it's more like a walking simulator in certain respects, even though I wouldn't classify it as one. But it is the type of thing where (laughs) on paper, it sounds very simplistic, but on paper, it doesn't have all the texture and the things that, of course, us horror fans love and get a lot more out of than the average maybe gamer or whatnot. But I could see Twitch being something where people that were like, well, I'm on the fence about this. I think I'll just watch somebody play it. I could see that scenario playing out, even if, of course, that would not be the best way to ever uh, experience this game. I would rather watch somebody on the sofa play it rather than on Twitch, but that's just me. You, you know what was smart that the Telltale games did when, like, the Twitch thing, like, started happening is, like, didn't they... I think the only Telltale game I can think of that had this was uh, was the Batman one. Where, like, you could give out a code to, like, your stream, and everyone could log in on their phone and vote on the choices. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yep, like, I, I feel remember like- that. Or it got to the point where it was the percentage based on what everybody had done, because it connected, yes. collected data yeah. or something, I think. Yeah, so I feel like... I feel like if, if these type of games kind of, like, not necessarily focus on it, but include those type of modes that, like... Yeah something like especially until dawn like at the time would have been massively popular um because it does recreate the like oh not necessarily the pass the controller thing but it gets like the audience involved in like well what should i do here like i'm gonna let you guys decide um and once again until dawn came (laughs) a little too early for that yeah because it it doesn't you know apart from the qte stuff um you know most decisions come at a point where you've got time and it gives you the time to make that decision. It doesn't go, no, hurry up, make this bloody decision now for the sake of cinematicness. That's yeah. it. it has to be done. But yeah, it, it's the way it should be with that. And it, but it really would have been brilliant if it had that sort of implementation where you had people helping out and choosing what to do in certain moments like that because those moments are the ones that really hit the plot big time it's like it's fun because i remember the first time i played heavy rain i played with like a room in a room with like four of my friends they had all played it i hadn't i played that entire game in one sitting full disclosure (laughs) (laughs) did not know it was going to be that long (laughs) but literally by the end of it it was like the whole room of people yelling, oh, like at some of these choices <laughs> that I was making. And then like also it's entertaining. Like I could get like why a streamer would use it to make it entertaining. Because like, you yeah. know, the scene with Madison and Heavy Rain where she's drinking the tea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was uh, I w- and it's drugged and she like uh, gets like locked up in the basement. Mm-hmm. I was entertaining my friends by like I kept drinking the tea over and over and one of my friends like no what the fuck are you doing stop that (laughs) well that was the fun that I had like passing the controller around in college because again like I liked a character but then maybe somebody else didn't and they were doing it just to fuck with me at that point and then thinking about even though it was uh, after college it was hard to get people in a room together because life and things like that 
play a game, but uh-huh. it's the type of thing where it's like, well, keeping that in the back of my mind for when I go back and do my own replay, right? And then it's like, oh, yeah. now I want to see the outcomes that could go if I actually saved that character. And that's like, a, it sounds like a very black and white thing, but having that mo- those moments to carry that much weight be prevalent throughout the entire game, right? Again, like you make so many decisions in the game and there's a certain amount of weight to each of them. I feel like for the most part, things don't feel like they're just there kind of just like, oh, well, yeah, you need another decision here. Everything kind of feels like it is done so in the betterment of various plot avenues. Uh, it's organic. Yeah, it's organic yeah. Um, in the best way possible. Yeah, I mean, the, the best example of that is in how it utilizes the idea of doing nothing. That know? too, yeah. Um, you know, early on, they make a great point by using the idea of trying to kill a bird of a snowball that sometimes the best idea is to do nothing. And it's true because it's so easy to think in a game that you must do something. You know, you must make decision A or decision B. And sometimes the best thing you can do is just to let it happen. And this whole new path opens up. And it's not just like... And again, I, I'm not trying to rag on Telltale because I fucking love the Walking Dead series especially. But it's this thing, the idea where like if you say nothing, it's just like, well, it's just going to make a stock response from people. And, and that's it. <laughs> An awkward silence. And yeah, it's like... They'll comment. It's like, oh, you don't give a shit about what I'm saying. It's like, silence. Silence. So, They'll remember so, this. It's so... Um, <laughs> I I did not I was not that type of person to remain silent in these games up until like fairly recently and I actually kind of want to go back to Until Dawn and try a like say nothing playthrough. Mm. Um the game that really nailed that home with me was a uh, the new Guardians of the Galaxy game. Yeah. Cuz like when you stay silent, the characters keep talking. <laughs> like like <laughs> Usually, a, a dialogue option will pop up to have Star Lord like interrupt like an argument or something or say something quirky. But like you can stay silent, and the characters will keep talking, and you'll get these new threads of dialogue that it's like, like oh shit, I would not have got this information had I like spoke yeah. up. And it's and it's done in a smart way that like I'm really curious now to how Until Dawn like implements that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Any future games from Supermassive. To, to have that sort of option would be cool. I mean, before Guardians, the only game I could really think that that was useful was um, Oxenfree. Well, you know, the conversation was just ongoing and you could just sort of go, nope, fuck off, I'm not going to listen to another word you say. Or, or you could choose to listen to the whole conversation. It could, without really impacting anything meaningful in the game itself, you learn stuff much in it like you say in a very organic way because the choice to interrupt someone or not opens up a whole new avenue of conversation you know it's like you suddenly have changed what could be revealed from that situation and yeah Guardians of the Galaxy does it really well I mean not surprising given it's the Deus Ex guys and it is so good they like they hit the nail on the head on like multiple things like at first i was like oh deus ex guys doing guardians they're probably going to be so held back but like (laughs) even with like the dialogue options i knew like in my mind i was like it's going to be superficial it's not going to impact it all that well but like in a weird way guardians of the galaxy like implements its dialogue choices 
and the way character interactions happen better than the Guardians of the Galaxy Telltale game. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, until you mentioned that, I forgot that was a thing. But it's like, it's, yeah, they, they'd already done that. And it, it's, and I mean, that was fairly well received. So it's, well, Guardians are two for two on video game adaptation now, which is mad considering most superhero stuff. In mentioning that, I think that's an element that really capitalizes on Until Dawn's uh, characters one night. We've talked about sort of the idea that you're not told a terrible amount about the characters, so it's easier to see yourself in their shoes and whatnot. But I was surprised at how, like, making different decisions for different characters, maybe just for the sake of getting a new experience or a new tinge to my experience and whatnot, I liked how their ability to write characters given the time that of course and it helps when you keep them alive for longer than a few sections but <laughs> the idea that you could actually like come around to liking a character or maybe further understanding who they are the longer they're alive that was an element that was pretty surprising because I'm thinking uh, in terms of somebody like Emily who from the outset is like yeah her trope is is that she's basically like the bitchy friend basically who just just like playing people against one another for and all these other things and yet the longer that you keep her alive and to the point where you have that pivotal moment where she gets bit by the uh, the Wendigo and you have the choice of either killing her or letting her uh, live basically and based on keeping her alive even longer and longer and making certain decisions that I did in the previous time whereas I think I had had her like I didn't opt to save her and I say opt to save uh, Matt who's her boyfriend like jumping but then she doesn't actually die when you kind of just like let her supposedly fall you get a different sense of sort of sympathy for that character when you come to that pivotal moment and that's something that I think is really telling in terms of just the freedom of decisions and the organic way in which you're allowed to really understand these characters through either their decisions or just furthermore kind of understanding who they are because those decisions are never easy Um, maybe the first playthrough it is but I think every time I go back certain decisions become more difficult because part of me a wants to see the other outcomes and how that can further impact the story but also just it strikes at the core of them which is that i feel like nothing is really black and white right especially that example of the wendigo where you don't know if the bites are contagious or not so you start juggling the factors of am i going to risk everybody's life for this one life of a character that i didn't necessarily like and that was my reaction the first time but then on the second most recent playthrough i was like well what if it's not actually infectious? And then you find out when I let her live and you read through the stranger's notebook, you find out, oh, the bites aren't infectious at all. Um, and that was a crazy moment for me uh, just because, and I'd forgotten uh, that that reveal was uh, was part of the game just because I hadn't played it in so long. But that was one of those things where I felt incredibly uh, just, it, I felt uh, fulfilled in my decision to go against my gut instinct, which is like, ah, eh, this character I could do without her. But now all of a sudden I'm just like, well, it makes me start to second guess a lot of my previous decisions. Did I make foolish decisions based on certain factors of just reading too much into who they are at face value rather than letting them maybe live longer and getting to know something new about them or something a better understanding or further my understanding of them. So just going on that, while we've got a moment, um, favorite and least favorite character of the protagonists I would say here that's what I'd like to know uh, for me um, in least favourite it probably comes down to Ashley I, I feel like there's nothing to her as a character and 
beyond being you know an object of lust you know, and and that's it um i mean even you know even say sam to a degree feels like getting away with being the big name actor or one of the bigger names in this cast rather than being like a major player there's not much to her as a character outside the beginning and the end and the rest is a bit you know, like that which you know but I think given the actor it is it makes yeah, it works well enough but Ashley is like In the back half of the game, too, don't they say, doesn't Sam keep being referenced as like Josh's only real friend in the group and that she was there for Mm. him and all these things? But I mean, maybe my memory is failing me, but I don't remember a great deal of instances where we actually see that being a factor of their relationship. I, I feel like they reference that so heavily in the later half of the game that she was his the real true friend she was there yeah. for him when he needed her and all of these things and he was she was the most compassionate when this happened to his sisters but i don't remember ever really seeing any examples of that or even just having much dialogue that further uh, would support that yeah in the defense there of the game i would say that's exactly why she doesn't get much to do it's because he's not in that first half of the game and now we're going into that sort of subversion of the story he doesn't torture her in the way he does the rest you know he doesn't mess with them hit her that way and so she doesn't end up in all the shenanigans that the rest of them do you know like sending off Mike to the cabin you know which is you know the purest dick movie he had there just like no yeah go off fuck off to this cabin that's absolute <laughs> shit <laughs> like even without the Wendigos it's like you know that it, it's awful but it just yeah that's the problem of the story less than the actor I would say that it, it just comes down to that whereas Ashley looks cool I just don't think she gets to be much beyond being I think it's Chris's love interest isn't it and, and that's it and I don't much like Chris either to be honest but um, only because he looks least like a real person out the, the whole lot of them he looks like Danny Wallace has been sort of like a yeah like someone had hired a Danny Wallace stand-in you know to be Chris and that, that's it um, in terms of favourites um, I mean it's always between Emily and Jessica I think personally just because occasionally they rise beyond the character they could be and I hate that Jessica dies in my playthroughs anyway as early as she does mm-hmm. because she just starts getting interesting as a person before she gets you know brutally taken out through a door window but you know Emily is the perfect example for me of like how they subvert the idea of a character in the, you know oh she's the bitch she does this you know like that and she's being acidic and people don't like her like that but then it's like you get to see why you know more and more and also it just makes it fun you know that that she's acting like that and you can sort of lean into it if you want to and really make her sort of revel in that but despite that she still comes off as being a character you really like enjoy spending time with like mike Mike's not far off there. Uh, so he, he has a bit of that to him, you know, where he's like, I mean, but they kind of give it away early on by saying, oh, he's intelligent. 
and all this stuff in, in his sort of psych profile. That so you know, as much as he's supposed to be like the jock, he ends up being, you know, he's he can be sensitive, he can be caring. He is trying to do the best he can in this weird situation where his ex is there, and uh, you know, it could cause all this drama. It, yeah, but yeah, if if I had to pick, I would say probably Emily. Emily would be the best. Today. What about you, Jay? Uh, for me, I would. I guess you covered a lot of how I feel about a lot of these characters, but I think like Michael definitely gets a good redemption arc for, Mm. I think you're right about Chris. Like Chris is kind of, I don't know. He never really feels, he's the one character that I don't feel we get a great sense of it, how he feels on anything because he kind of, he comes at everything at different, you kind of have these preconceived notions about him. And then of course he's supposed to be like Josh's best, one of his guy friends out of the group. But I never feel like that's ever really explored to the degree that it could be. Whereas somebody like Mm. Michael, he feels the most like he has the most growth in terms of the male characters where he starts out being very much what you would assume. uh, He kind of plays off of Matt, right? Matt, he's Matt's the new boyfriend and they're both very, this like the handsome jocks and whatnot. But I feel like he is the one that feels the most sincere out of the male characters by the end of it, where he kind of moves away from, a lot, maybe that's, that ties into like the fact that they describe him as being like intelligent and that don't judge him by uh, the way that he looks or just sort of the general preconceived notions you might have, which to your point about Jess not being fully explored, like she is one of the characters that I f- found to be the most interesting from the outset just because she so quickly goes from being the character where you're like, oh, well, she's this the flirty pretty girl that just is going to go after the prototypical male jock persona and whatnot, but then when they're about to have that intimate moment, you start to see that character break down and reveal like, oh, this is really kind of just a charade a lot of the time where yeah. she feels very uncertain about herself and all of these different things. And that was an element that I thought was interesting because, of course, it's playing against type. But then as soon as you start to get the sense of who she is, the armor comes down, essentially, then she gets killed off almost right away. Um, is she? I don't even know if she's a character that could uh could live very long into the game just because she's always died in my first uh the i mean opening i section. don't ever look yeah. i don't ever look right. to Let's check but yeah she always ends up being the first one every single time and i think her death mostly signifies the um the ramifications of taking the safe route i would assume right yeah. that's there's that idea where he has to mike has to chase after her and then you can either I think it's you can take the staircase, the stairs down to get to the base level, yeah, or you can take a, a leap across a, a a gap or something like that. Yeah, I mean, in the last playthrough I did, I took the unsafe route. I went back to grab her, you know, all those things, and she still d- died the same way. It's oh. like, so it's like, I feel like she's just majorly sp- supposed to be in most canons of this story is she's supposed to be the one that dies first to sort of... Reina, did you have Jess die for you in your most recent playthrough? <sighs> I'm trying to think who who all died in my last playthrough. Because <laughs> um, the last three times I've played this, she's died every time. So I, I, yeah. I think she might be I, I, one I, of the I, ones that just is an automatic death. Yeah, I think she's a required death because if I recall, she does die in every time I played this game. Um as far as favorite characters, though, mm-hmm. though, it's my boy Mike. That whole redemption arc, how he's like this asshole jock at the beginning to like, kind of like the hero of the story at the end. I, it's cliched, but I love it. Yeah, 
No, definitely. I think especially when, I don't know, for my recent playthrough, I always, I played against the the friction between him and, um, uh, I think it's Matt, right? The new, Emily, yeah. Emily's new boyfriend, yeah. So, like, I always played away from that because before the, my first playthrough, I was, I played him too type, which was a very aggro, right? That's the perception of him. But then playing against that and then keeping with that throughout the entire rest of the game, it was the one thing that I think really fueled that, obviously, the redemption arc, but also just his character uh, very naturally in the writing, whether regardless of which decision you make, he just comes across as being this figure that is having a like a growing uh, a growing sympathy maybe just in terms of like the events that transpired a year before he's the one that feels the most natural maybe in having that growth whereas somebody like chris is so morally gray i suppose that it's like well he could go either way in terms of like whether or not he truly feels as um as regretful in his actions as some of the other characters do which like with ashley i think she's one of those characters that to neil's point could have definitely been fleshed out more and she kind of feels like they basically were like well she could be chris's love interest and we'll have her sort of just like give a bit of herself here or there but she's a character that definitely feels more like a plot device which then at the same time doesn't necessarily go anywhere other than like even when they have their sort of like little romance thing i feel that it doesn't necessarily add a whole lot to the story itself so chris and ashley are definitely the two characters that i think were uh were in addition to Jess, but it sounds like she dies. She dies every time. But those are the she two. She doesn't. No, she doesn't. Okay. Did no, you no. just Google it? Yeah, I had to because I was like, I had to know. I was like, you. Can't, there is one instance, and I think I've done the right things to make her survive. You know, she will always go out of that window every single time. But depending on the decisions you make, um, she can live huh. and be found later on. So I'm not going to wow. tell anyone yeah. I, for, for the. Because I believe in the spirit of this game, I'm not going to tell anyone what that is, but yeah, she can be saved. She can be alive at the end of that game. See, if anything, it makes me want to go back and replay it again now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to download it on my PlayStation (laughs) today. (laughs) Maybe I'll revisit it again after uh, I get around to House of Ashes, because it sounds like that's the one that that I need to play. But uh, Raina, for you, which is the character that you probably like the least? As much as like... I like this particular actor. I don't like Josh. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's up there in terms of like people I don't like. And and I think partially part of it is Rami Malek's performance. Yeah, is, is like <laughs> it's a little like how do I put this? It's kind of shit. Like it, it's, it's not, not great. great. Uh, I mean, once you've played through the game once. Yeah, and you know the twist, which fully revealing here is that halfway through the game, you think there's a slasher killer. It's just him taking the piss um, to a very aggressive degree, I might add. But um, yeah. the f- everything about him just feels super creepy, you know. And he just ends up being like, yeah, just everything you're saying, it just feels so disingenuous. Yeah, like, some of the line delivery is, like, really bad. Like, especially in that first half. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was, like, the way he was directed or just, like... Something about that performance in particular always stuck out with me on this game as, like, oh, like... 
not only is it standing out even more so now because it's Rami Malek and like I know yeah. he could probably <laughs> outact everybody else in this game, but because it just it it's a little too obvious. Like it's a little yeah. too on the nose if I'm making sense. Um, yeah. I mean, and, on the upside of that is the fact that they go somewhere else after that. And, yeah. Uh, and they don't make him, like, the killer. You know, they, yeah. If he had been the killer and that had been the big reveal, that would have been fucking stupid. And I, the game would have tanked awfully. And I remember thinking it was pretty fucking stupid at first, because then it's also like the, oh, the April Fool's Day twist where yeah. people weren't actually dying. And it was like... I was like, man, if this game has, if this game ends like right here, I'm gonna be fucking pissed. But, but then thankfully they do go that meta route with like monsters and whatnot, like the Wendigo and whatnot. And yeah, it, I mean, it, it ends, it ends up paying off. Yeah, I mean, that's to me is one of the greatest things about that story is the point where it starts throwing both things up as an idea that there could be a slasher, or maybe it's something more like that. And it keeps playing it off as a thing. And you know, before they reveal the whole, you know, so, you know, the psychologist in Peter Stormare's character with you know, with Ryan Malik and being you know, a hallucination of him, it, it's something that kind of like leads up to it all really well. I think, and it pulls it off massively uh, I think there it, it makes it the story so much more interesting that suddenly it's not it's not one thing it's not another it's two or three different things at once yeah. you know it's like not only is it the case of yes he's not the killer but he is still absolutely fucking crazy you know and doing weird shit but also there are killers out there that are Wendigos oh and also there's this fucking a whole history about why these people there are Wendigos out there and it just throws thing upon thing upon thing and it makes that second half of the game so amazing because you just have all this chaos of stuff going on and I think you mentioned it before Rain, where you had you get to that ending and you can have like everyone almost there and it can so quickly change you know where you you go from like having a whole squad of people surviving up to the end and that ending is just obliterate people and, and take it down to nothing very quickly and it, it's just that is brilliant I, I love that about it I think his character they could have done more with his character I think because I love that final segment where he starts having those hallucinations and you see how obviously the events of the past year have yeah. completely broken him and that's one of the moments that always stands out to me just because of how they're able to incorporate that trauma and then, of course, showing the sort of like the fucked up ways in which it has affected him and why that's largely dictating the uh, actions that he's had throughout it. And I almost yeah. wish that they had taken that entire reveal one step further where it's like, OK, he's actually not the killer, but then putting you in the shoes of the killer and having him not only kind of deal with his hallucinations in the same way that Chris and Ashley are dealing with those fake ghostly sightings that they have in the basement. Except then the reveal is of course, is that Josh's perceived horrors are actually real. Whereas the uh, previous pairs were not, um, that would have been some, an element that this time on this playthrough, I was like, well, I wish they'd done a little bit more with that. But then of course it just gave me a new appreciation for the game's overall pacing in terms of 
the meta elements, but then when they introduce the Wendigos, it goes full Wendigo, and it almost never looks back. You get that, again, slight deviation with the uh, the horrific hallucinations and whatnot, which I wish there had been more of throughout the game, but I just love that it's able to kind of just, like, change the direction that it's taking at a moment's notice, yeah. and it leans into that fully in a way that... A, it feels earned. Again, like taking it back to the cinematic or TV qualities of it, it builds up to that really, really well, right? Because you have not only the clown mass killer, but then you've got the stranger that's been lurking the entire game to the degree that when the Wendigos are actually introduced, you basically don't see it coming uh, in a lot of ways. Even though if you read more into the lore and whatnot, there's uh, there's the uh, evidence and hints that oh, there's actually maybe something else going on. But I like that the game... At least each potential avenue of an explanation is given the same amount of expanding on, but also just the same amount of attention. It doesn't feel like maybe any one particular one is an afterthought, mm. which would come off as being, I guess, if they didn't sell each of the potential outcomes as well as they do, it would have been more of like, how stupid do you think we are as an audience? Like, we can see through yeah. the thinly veiled explanations versus the ones that at least if everything is sold with the same amount of uh, yeah. of world building and whatnot. I think the other point on that is that that really does, again, delve into the idea of directing the game on the second playthrough especially, because the first time you're not really, you don't know anything. You know, and the second time is like, well, now I understand this, 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 and this. I can start shaping this to be more like my experience it's like it's going through the editing process it's like you know with each playthrough it's like well I want the story to go this way this time I want to make that character do that make this decision and uh, maybe I don't want them to make it if I try to take the shortcut I'll let them fuck it up and <laughs> see how that goes and that's cool I like that and it just that that especially makes it feel like it is direction because you are saying oh yeah okay well now we've done this one way let's see how we can change this by doing it this way and we'll see how it goes it does it work for us is this what we want and eventually maybe you play it a few times through and then you have in your head this idea of a definitive cut if you will uh, of this experience where you do it exactly how you want it to be mm. and you play it through that way and I love that about it because for people who aren't making films but love the idea of doing so it's one of the closest things you'll get mm. I think <laughs> and I have to I, before we move on from uh, characters I have to say Peter Stormar as uh, Dr. Hill is probably my favorite character <laughs> just because I love how I love the way that his character is incorporated. And of course you have that big reveal where it's like, yeah, it's a manifestation of Josh's uh, insanity and whatnot. But I just love that that character is it, like, there's the only two, I think like older ma uh, male characters, that being him and the stranger. And they are yeah. the figures of like authority within the world. And I love the contrast between that. And of course our large team cast uh, of characters that we control more or less throughout the game. Um, and I just love the, what like his character brings and the sort of gravitas that's played to that. And of course, those are the most cinematic uh, moments almost in the game in terms of like having that very standard uh, cutscene cinematic feel to them. 
versus all the other uh, interactions with characters. And I just love like how <laughs> he's so in character, but he's just able to command a scene in a way that, you know, yeah. not to discredit any of the other actors, but he steals the show every single time that he is yes. part of a scene. And that's exactly what his character should do, right? I don't know how much of it is his performance, but it's just the actor's ability. It's his essence on screen, which, you know, that's a very cliched way to describe an actor, but he is able to completely demand the focus of the gamer and the viewer at that point in a way that it just it feels very significant even if at the end like you learn obviously that it's all a manifestation of josh's insanity but at the same time like it just it adds so much in the moment but also in terms of just further fleshing out like oh there's an authority figure in this world and then having that rug pulled out from under you essentially by the end of the game i just i'd say a fantastic quality that I wish there was more of him. Yeah, I mean, he makes some interesting uh, jabs at what you do in that game, and especially with the knowledge that you are Josh in those sort of choice-based segments. Mm. Like, it, if you start picking, you know, Josh is like the lowest person or one of the lowest people in when you're having to pick who's your favorite, who do you like, who don't you like, sort of thing section. It's like. He just gives you these lovely little nods and like, mm, yeah, I, I'm really listening. I really care what you're thinking about. So they, it's so sardonic and it, 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 it's brilliant like that. And again, I mentioned it at the, at the top of the episode where he, the animation you know, and the capture for him is so slightly off that it makes it so over the top that it works perfectly for him. You know, he is... Like he feels like this big mocking, stupid presence. Yeah, you know, it's like where he thinks he's better than you, and he thinks he knows better than you. And it's like every little thing you make. He has the knowledge. You know, he knows what you're doing. He knows what's going to happen if you make a decision. And so he can just sit there, just sort of looking at you, going, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a fucking genius making <laughs> that decision, aren't you? Yeah, yeah." Like that, that. He, he, he stops short of literally standing up and just slow clapping you when right. you do something really dumb, you know. And but it's there, you know. You can see it, and part of that is the facial capture being a little over the top, and part of it is him. And I think because he is a sort of actor that suits that. Where, you know, even if it does mess him up slightly, he's still going to really just chew the scenery in the perfect way for, for the medium he's in. Uh, yeah, it it continues to be one of my favourite things about the game. Uh, it's just having those little interludes. And in a way that the dark pictures don't quite get because they play it a bit straight with the, the whole interludes of the narrator. So, so that was actually a question that came to mind when you were, we were talking about those games earlier, because again, I've, I've only played a few hours of the uh, Man of Medin, but in terms of those games, like, do they lose a lot of the campiness? Do they try to play it like it's more of a straight horror experience? Because I could see, as successful as they might have been in something like uh, House of Ashes and whatnot, I could see that losing a lot of what I love about Until Dawn, right? Because, again, like Until Dawn mm-hmm. is very campy and very much leaning into this outrageous uh, love of a specific genre, but it doesn't bother me the way that some of the maybe more uh, trashier or lesser so attempts uh, striving for the same thing, because those don't adhere the same amount of production value, or the same amount of maybe 
respect or understanding that Until Dawn gives to those elements that if they were done in a lesser degree, it would come off as more like, okay, just rolling my eyes rather than kind of just like laughing it up with it. I think it's less tongue-in-cheek, mm. you know, there's a little more seriousness to it, but I think the narrator in those games, you know, there's a twinkle in his eye and, you know, a little sort of, it's more refined, you know? Mm. It's like, you know, where a Stormer's performance is just, like I said, it's like, you can tell the way it's done that it is not like a host of a show. It's someone who's a figment of someone's imagination that you know, that person is already just wackadoodle. Mm. Whereas, you know, the narrator in the dark pictures does feel very much more like a Rod Serling type, you know, he is there to sort of present the story and maybe sort of have a little sort of cheeky dig at the idea of what's going on and it fits those games better. And I think comparing the two is almost unfair because they're not going for the same thing. You know, Stormare's character is very much a plot device, you know, and it works for what it is. The Dark Pictures, the, the narrator there, is just there to judge you in a very general way because he's giving you the stories and saying, hey, you know, what would you do in this situation? He's like, he is the psychologist more than Stormare's character. You know, he is judging you and evaluating you on what you're going to do in that in these situations. Um, and it feels more permanent because he's carrying on from game to game to game. Absolutely, yeah. And I guess that's the thing that if I was going to go and play any of those dark picture anthology games, I would always hope that while they might, again, like have more of those celebrity cast members and things like that, I would want a figurehead sort of like the Peter Stormire uh, character and whatnot, a performance that is sort of being a standout as some sort of an authority, but also maybe not playing it like he's doing it for a video mm. game, which sometimes like that's one of the things with, for me at least, when I get celebrities in video games, I'm like, are they approaching this like it is another acting job or are they approaching it like this is a video game which can yeah. have that can have some interesting <laughs> for lack of a better word interesting results uh, in terms of like their approach to it because sometimes I can get the sense that some celebrities that come from like either TV or film they, it, they come to a video game and they're like well this is a video game this is not the same as either of those and Peter Stormare's performance it feels like he approached this like he would any of the other countless villainous roles that he's played in film, which shines through in the role of Dr. Hill and whatnot, and why that character is so pronounced in a way that differs from the rest of the cast, not to say that it uh, it necessarily like eclipses them or anything, but it just it is the standout, and he plays exactly the role he needs to play. Uh, so I definitely yeah. had to give him a shout-out, because that's one of my favorite roles in the game. But also, in your mentioning um, your... Um, what were we saying for a second? Um, you mentioned the facial capture. And the facial capture in general, the one thing that does not work for me is the mouths in this game. Mm. Every time they have a character that smiles or anything like that, it, for whatever reason, jumps out at me in a way that is super distracting. <laughs> and the teeth. Yeah, the teeth is the, the, yeah, the teeth are just so <laughs> fucked. And they just make everything devolve into a comedy, for me at least. Or it undercuts a lot of it, which 
is a tech thing. Like I'll chalk it up to that, but that's something that even on a replay, as much as I enjoy it, um, it's the type of thing where I'm just like, oh shit, <laughs> this definitely <laughs> undercut maybe the uh, direction that they were going. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's one of those things that technology at the time, but again, like I said before, I think it makes it slightly endearing as a for what it's going for mm. because it has this sort of 2000 slasher vibe going on to have a few weird ass performances in there it just makes perfect <laughs> perfect sense you know it's just to have these demented sort of smiles and grins on people's faces just really adds something that and you know, that really shouldn't but it does it, it really does just make it like what the fuck am I in? What, what is this? You know, and yeah, Stormer is perfect example of that because you know he's just constantly gurning throughout mm. his entire performance, and yeah, and Rami Malek again is just one of those where it's like I've never seen him as anything other than this absolute weirdo yeah. because of that performance because he just the grins he puts such inane grins it, it really does just drive home this idea that you're just a weird guy well Reina I guess before we let you go um, I'm curious who survived uh, the last playthrough that you had of Until Dawn do you remember Uh, aside from like the required deaths Mm. um, you know what pretty much everyone survived except Sam because I did that I tried to recreate my first one Mm -hmm. just to refresh my memory of it so like at the end when it's like hold still when the windows are in that (laughs) room I just move my controller and she just gets like decapitated (laughs) But I always find it interesting to do that because I'm like, well, I, I just created a horror movie where the final girl doesn't actually yeah. live. Like, literally everybody else does, though. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, it's always it's always an experience to go back to. I'm actually going to download it today and just run through it. I, I want to do that run where I'm like, how fast can I kill absolutely everybody? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See how good. short the game is there. My most recent one, I only had Sam, Chris, and Matt survive, but I was I was, I was was not being as uh, as careful as I could be. I had to finish a replay for uh, to record this, but um, I did like, and I had forgotten the fact that in the after credits you have the characters getting interviewed by the police and they actually have mm. to answer for some of their decisions that they made, because some of the decisions during my recent playthrough, I was like, well, that didn't really impact anything at all. But then, like, with uh, Chris specifically, there's an instance where they tie up Josh, and he hits him in the head and knocks him out. And I was like, well, that didn't really have an impact other than now Josh is unconscious, and that didn't have a greater significance. But then Josh almost, he becomes defensive in the interview. They're like, well, because they still obviously don't believe that there was a Wendigo or anything. They're like, well why did you hit him? Like, and he starts getting defensive about like, Oh, you just had to beat. Like, it sounds worse when I say it out loud, yeah. you don't have the context. And that was like a little moment that I just love. They gave a greater significance, especially in like a post credit sequence or a credit sequence. And they just furthermore fleshed out that idea that, or that event. And it had that character come off in a way that I hadn't thought about just because, you know, you're so close to it when you're making those decisions. Exactly. And that epilogue is great. I do like the idea of a game that's very like story driven having like a like a little wrap up set mm. set piece going like yeah. oh here's how everything it's better than like oh the art cards telling what happened to every character. <laughs> right. 
But <laughs> I was just gonna say a kit like akin to a uh, like a fighting game at the end when they couldn't be bothered to give like an anim- a full cinematic <laughs> oh. animation. You just get like the three still images with audio over it or narration. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> man. Fortunately, we get a little bit of a uh, a, more, a higher production value for that end credit sequence. Do we though now? Because like Mortal Kombat 11. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I haven't played Mortal Kombat in so long. I'm thinking about some of the uh, the earlier era Mortal Kombat. Oh uh, yeah, no. Netherrealm is like still very guilty of like. But to be fair, the games are a lot more massive now than they were. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. But I guess at the end of the day, until dawn, for like for its flaws that we have that we went very in depth with, I think it's a game that still stands out. In, mm. in the horror like video game realm today like when i think like top five horror games like until dawn is always on that list mm. no matter the placement like the placement will change but it's always one that i personally like remember and go back to and have very fond thoughts on absolutely it definitely stands as a as a game that i think is very easy to describe and yet it is one of those games that you can't truly get a proper appreciation for until you actually like get to experience it yourself but also getting to replay it and have that experience that's not that could be completely different right again that is such a uh, a marketing like talk about games where it's like oh you get a new experience every time but how often is that the reality whereas with this game it feels like again it's surprising at how well and how true that actually is given that this was their first horror game. They're not especially well-versed in the genre. And they're able to craft something that it has so many different paths that feel so different than the other ones, right? Mm. It's not really, again, it's some of the decisions might seem black and white, but I would never describe any of my multiple playthroughs of the game as being that, like, this is the good ending, this is the bad ending. It's more about taking it and getting the most out of the character that you could that perhaps you didn't get on the last playthrough or the playthrough before that. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Until Dawn is definitely one of those games that hopefully people that maybe are coming to the anthology picture games first, just because, you know, they are the more recent games now at this point, will go back and get an appreciation for that and seeing maybe if, uh, you know, I can't speak to the quality of the anthology picture games, but maybe getting something a little more intimate or a little more genre-heavy sort of like uh, Until Dawn in the future from them would be great, but... Raina, it was a pleasure having you on Safe Room to chat uh, Until Dawn and Horror. Yeah, thank you both for having me. It's it's good to like talk about a different medium besides movies sometimes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Especially <laughs> because I'm a fan of horror and all like forms and mediums. But uh, yeah, thank you both to having me. This was a really fun chat and it was it's honestly really great to just go back and revisit this game every now and then. And uh I'm super excited for House of Ashes now. It's a, like I just got shipping <laughs> confirmation. It's like, oh, it'll be here on Tuesday. <laughs> That's your That's next fair. week sorted. Yeah, for real. For real. It's that in Kojima Games. <laughs> yeah. But uh, before we let you go, uh, if you want to plug uh, your Twitter or anything uh, that you've been working on recently. Yeah, so you can follow me online at JFC Doomblade. I pretty much have a lock on that handle on all social medias. You can also find my work being published pretty regularly at bloodydisgusting.com and fangoria.com um but yeah i i just write about everything like like i mostly write about movies but i reviewed resident evil village for bloody disgusting and go read that because i feel like that should have won game of the year at the game awards and it didn't (laughs) 
we could have yeah, a whole that, other that, conversation about the game awards right <laughs> yeah <laughs> no really <laughs> thank you again Raina. this was a pleasure chatting yeah thank you anytime Thanks again to Reina for her time and chatting about Until Dawn. And uh, for some further reading on BladeDiscussing.com in regards to Until Dawn, uh, I'll turn things over to our very own Neil Bolt for some uh, recommendations. Yes, we're going to do a bit of further reading here for you on this particular game because we've had a few decent articles, I'd say, on Until Dawn and that involve Until Dawn over the years um, from people who you may hear from just after this. But... To begin with, um, in the article Eight of the Most Memorable Deaths in Horror Games, uh, which was written by Brandon Trush, um, it does indeed mention a particular death from Until Dawn, which is that, and it's no spoiler to say that you know anyone can die in that game. So uh, it's, in particular, it's the death of Emily in one scene that really gets it uh, properly. That is worth mentioning because it, the connotations of the death are uh, in that scenario are massive and really are quite impactful in a game that really otherwise revels in its death. Um, elsewhere, uh, Harrison Abbott, obviously a friend of the show, that's what we know, and uh, he put a few articles out in over the years on Bloody Disgusting called Dreadnotes, which is where he looks at the notes you get left in video games, especially horror video games, you know, that sort of tell the greatest story about uh, the game. And they're usually collectibles, as we know, so you have your stuff like Resident Evil, Silent Hill, Last of Us, stuff like that. But uh, in this particular one, uh, Dreadnotes revisited more of horror gaming's creepiest collectible documents. He... um, brings up the 1952 note from Until Dawn. I would definitely recommend looking at that because that's a cool note to sort of look at. Um, what else have we got? I have, sorry, I just couldn't see that there. Aaron Boehm, who's also been on the show a couple of times, uh, when discussing how Stranger Things can help shape the future of horror games, he uh, brings up Until Dawn as a good point of reference for sort of bridging that gap in terms of how it handles uh, life and death and permadeath you know, as we've been discussing on the show so far uh, as being a great uh, tool to utilise in sort of making a televisual sort of dramatic stakes if you will Yeah, it's definitely worth looking at uh, a bit of self-pimping here um, I, what was it now two, three years ago, two years ago two and a half now, uh, did an interview with uh, CEO of yeah, Supermassive Games, Pete Samuels, uh, talking about Man of Medan, uh, Until Dawn, horror, the, just horror anthologies in general. And you know, there's a bit of insight from what I was saying in the episode about that uh, in there for further reading. Also, two more. Uh, one from me, I mentioned about horror games at Sony's PlayStation production should turn into movies and shows. Until Dawn was a very obvious choice there. Uh, And finally, Tyler Treese's article from about three years ago, um, how the PlayStation camera ruined the scariest moments of Until Dawn for him, which was a very cool personal story that I I really loved. I think Raina sort of touched upon it about that thing in the ending with with her dog coming in and ruining that ending. Uh, and it, it straight away clicked in my head and was like, I 
have to remember to mention this article at some point because it is exquisitely in keeping with that. So yeah, those are my recommendations for further reading on Bloody Disgusting for Until Dawn. Jay, what about the reader comments? Reader? Listener even, in this case. I'm going all Adam and Joe on this and saying the reader comments. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, for people that uh, are listening and have been enjoying the show, we would love to hear your thoughts, uh, dear listeners, on our upcoming podcast topics that uh, we will be announcing every week. And you can share your thoughts with us on Twitter by tweeting at SafeRoomPod, just like these next three uh, listener comments did. So first up is Brandon Trush. As you mentioned, he has written for BloodyDisgusting.com. He wrote an article about Until Dawn, and he tweets, Until Dawn unearths a really interesting question about the line between cinema and video games. It jumps between the two so often that defining it solely as one or the other doesn't seem to do it justice, especially when you consider the nature of streaming and the amount of people who have watched a playthrough of Until Dawn but never actually played it. It's almost solely a cinematic spirit. It's almost solely a cinematic experience at this point. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point in terms of we used so many different like variables to describe Until Dawn, right? I mentioned it as being very cinematic, like a movie. And then, of course, it has very TV-like structure to it with the episodic sort of nature that's not completely unlike that of Alan Wake and whatnot. But in using those ways to describe it, that doesn't do it fully the justice that it deserves, right? Because then if you lead with that, you might as well say like, well, you could just watch it on Twitch, which as we stated in our conversation with Reina, that's not the best way to experience the game, right? Because in actually getting to play it yourself, you get more meaning behind those decisions that are being made. And it's not quite as sort of black and white, but also if you're just watching it and you're watching somebody that, isn't as invested in the world of Until Dawn as you are, then you're not going to get all the context for those various mystery threads that are trailing along as basically subplots, right? They're not necessary to get to the end of the story, but if anything, they just further bolster that world and they make the events that happen in it that much more, I guess, just informed in terms of your uh, own uncovering the mystery of Until Dawn. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those weird things. I think... It's fair to say it works both ways. I, I think there is room for that audience that want to enjoy it that way as much as there is the people that play it. Um, mm. you know, I think I can be quite happily snobby in saying that it's much better to play it, but it's one of those games that really um, gets it, you know, as points go. To Brandon's point, game's ability rather to really blur the line between those two things right it being cinema and video games is what allows it to work so well and it justifies it being this interactive experience and whatnot so definitely uh thank you brandon for your comments and uh they're definitely in line with neil and i's thinking on until dawn a game that uh i had a great deal of fun in revisiting and i'm sure neil did as well uh next up is listener steve bolin he thinks that the game truly shines when played with others. Games such as this and Telltale's The Walking Dead games are similar in that one false move results in one over-the-top terrible fate for a character, which can be jarring but devolves into goofy parody. Um, I agree in the sense that, and I mean, I shared the anecdote of getting to play the game with lots of people in college, yeah. right, passing around the controller or whatnot, having that communal ex- that communal uh, couch co-op experience, and. I agree that on a replay, 
it was fun to go back and play with friends and whatnot and be like, oh, let's see how crazy of a death we can get with this yeah. character this time or something like that. I think I wouldn't compare it to being like a goofy parody the first time I played it because there is that sense of the unknown and whatnot. But I think that is something that lends to Until Dawn having the replayability. And same with Telltale's The Walking Dead. It gives it that replayability because both of those games give the same amount of attention and detail and whatnot to every death. So it kind of, it feels more rewarding to go back and replay those than maybe some other games that claim to give players the choice, but maybe the decisions are not given the same amount of respect they deserve in terms of fleshing them out, or maybe the options are not that varied, Mm -hmm. right? We talked about that in our conversation with Reyna, where plenty of games claim to give the player freedom and choice and all these things, and then you kind of typically get this generic, like, the good ending, (laughs) the bad ending, but they're not nearly as interesting as one or the other, or one is far more interesting than the other, where, again, with Until Dawn, part of what Supermassive Games nails with this so well, and it's surprising given this is their first horror game, is that every single element seemingly is given the same amount of de- uh, same amount of attention yeah. that it deserves, and more importantly, the respect it deserves. Nothing feels like a one-off, or really none of the deaths feel like, oh, well, that seems like it was an afterthought, whereas everything is memorable, everything is impactful in the way that it should yeah. be. I mean, I have nothing extra to add to that because you put that so well, but it reminded me this was a good time to bring up a story I wanted to bring up earlier when Raina was talking about uh, the interruption with the dog, how uh, <laughs> quite in a, a funny parallel with uh, Telltale's versus Not the Walking Dead. I was going to say this till we actually talked about it, but I'm mentioning it now because my a very annoying cat is... Uh, interrupted this show (laughs) twice now so um i got to the end of that game and the whole you know like the final scenes of the first season of the walking dead game and yeah you know what i'm talking about if you've played it and it was also dramatic and heartbreaking like that and then during that scene i got headphones in at the time i hear this weird noise behind me i'm looking behind and the cat decides to be it's going to start retching up a hairball at that exact <laughs> moment and then, so suddenly out this really melancholy sad scene I'm in utter panic mode because the cat's uh, trying to be sick and I'm like oh shit it can't be sick on the carpet can't be sick on the carpet it was sick on the carpet and it, it, yes, <laughs> yes you over there annoying <laughs> <laughs> I had a somewhat similar moment in terms of like something unexpected happening at one of those pivotal moments where you have to hold the controller still. Of course, I had the audacity to have to sneeze during one of those (laughs) moments and completely killed the stranger uh, at that pivotal moment where he tells you not to move. And of course, I sneeze and move the controller and then he gets decapitated as, uh, as one does when faced against a Windigo. But I think that that's an element of the game that, you know, the first time you're playing it, you might view it as being like kind of obnoxious and just being like a gimmicky kind of uh, uh, feature of the controller, DualShock 4 and whatnot for PS4 uh, at the time and whatnot. But on replays, again, it aids in the replay because if you're playing with other people, you get that anecdotal moment, right? That idea that it's like, well, just because I'm really good at holding it, if I pass the controller to my buddy that's going to play as these other characters when it's his turn... Maybe he's shit at yeah. that and he can't control himself. So all of a sudden he fucks up our entire run. But I say fucked up, but like I said in our episode in our conversation with Reyna, I don't think there's any wasted replays no. of this game. 
even if you have a certain thing in mind, because again, there's so many diverging paths and outcomes that stem off of that, that even if you maybe have a plan going forwards and somebody else makes a mistake or you make a mistake and it screws up your plan and somebody gets killed, you didn't want to get killed. There's still something rewarding in that playthrough in a way that, again, not a lot of games that claim to give you lots of choice and a variety of endings and outcomes. They just don't do it as well as Until Dawn. Absolutely true. And uh, I think also we have Harrison Abbott, friend of the show, uh, left us a comment that says, Until Dawn is enjoyable to play with others, even without a dedicated multiplayer mode. It just lends itself to you dividing characters between each other, passing the remote around. Uh, I never understood the appeal of trying to save everyone, though. I'm a cruel puppet master. (laughs) And, you know, uh, I think this is why Harrison gets along so well with this, because I'm very much in the same mind. My most recent playthrough, I think I had three people survive. Uh, And that's because, like, at the end of the day, I just wanted the core group to survive, even if that meant the ramifications of maybe two other characters it, that's just how it goes sometimes you got to think about the the greater good of the group and sometimes people get left behind in uh the most cruel of ways unfortunately yeah i mean that's the perfect temptation of a slasher movie style thing isn't it is it you know if nobody dies it's boring you know someone has to die yeah. you know it's like <laughs> and ideally a lot of people have to die so yeah that's the great thing about until dawn is that you can just sort of experiment between those things it's like what would it be like if nobody died? What would it be like if some people died? What would it be like if these people died this time? What would it be like if everybody died? And that's cool. I love that you can have this branching paths about these things where you can just decide one moment to be play it one way or another and have a completely different experience out of it. You know, because you know, as a formula, you know, the slasher style the, or creature featurey almost as it is means that it's usually one person maybe two survive but you don't have to you you can do it however you want you can shape it how you want and yeah that's that's great about it also i would love to see a return of you know obviously the ease of having online multiplayer now it's just like couch co-op is not even a thing that most Mm. developers it seems think about anymore and whatnot but i think until dawn serves as a really great modern example of that reality that you can design a game that almost without it having a dedicated co-op mode or a multiplayer mode designing the game so that way like it has the structure that if people want to play it in a party setting you could Um, that's something that i think a lot of games could benefit from that choose to adhere to like this sort of uh, episodic structure right this idea that horror games generally i mean they don't make for the best party games because of that very reason, right? It's very singular. It's more about, I guess, if people enjoy like really jump scare heavy games, but I'm just thinking about, again, my group of friends that aren't incredibly sold on horror. This is the type of thing, though, that again, for many of the reasons we detailed, like the production value, it has celebrities in it. It is very safe, I guess, in the sense that it is a horror game that's very heavy into the tropes, but it has the production value that sells them in a way that they're not going to tap out immediately. Like, sure, there's the jock, there's the cheerleader, the bitchy character, but again, overall, the presentation is not of a caliber that they're accustomed to when being faced with a lot of these things in film, which is why they tend to tap out on them, and I no longer recommend we watch those because they're like, well, 15 minutes in, yeah, I think I know how this is going (laughs) to end, that type of shit, and I'm like, I'm over that. So I think Until Dawn's a great example of the multiplayer component 
even though it's not necessarily the component that is uh, utilizing online features and things, but it makes me interested to go check out the other, um, the uh, Dark Picture Anthology games and seeing how multiplayer's been incorporated into those moving forward. I mean, key to all of those titles is that there is no real failure. You know, Mm. and again, to go back to Tales Tale as an example, it's like, you know, those are games that you can fail at and have to restart scenes and things like that. Here, it's like, no, if you do the wrong thing, it just changes the story. And that's where it becomes more flexible and more, like, exciting. It's like, your mistake can still lead to something different and new. And rather than just be, do it over again, try again, do the new thing, try and get the optimal thing we're asking for. It suddenly, it's just, do this is it. You've done it that way. That's how it's going to be. And that mm. feels perfect. For what this is yeah and uh hot off the presses it just literally just got another uh another user oh. Uh, oh. comment which we appreciate from uh the evil remains uh he said he was in love uh with until dawn when it first came out he really enjoyed it uh unfortunately for him the dark anthology games while enjoyable haven't been able to reach the same level of greatness as until dawn did um and you know again i have a very limited exposure to what has come out after Until Dawn, I played the first two hours of Man of Medan, but I wasn't sold on that nearly as much as I was on Until Dawn. Furthermore, why I didn't finish playing it, um, it felt uh, like I detailed in our episode. I won't uh, repeat myself too much, but it was the thing where it just felt like the scope was getting so large and the production value, it almost seemed like the scope gets so large and they're aware of the production value that it seemed a little too polished for the level of scope that they had in that it was moving outside of a lot of those like perceived safe tropes of horror that when they started to make it larger, then it started to not feel like a horror movie for me. It started to feel more like an adventure movie that had horror elements in it. Granted, I'd never finished it, so I can't speak to the full product, but that was the vibe that I got early on. Granted, in talking with you and Raina more, I think I'm going to definitely check out um, House of Ashes at some point soon because it sounds like that is more of a return to what made Until Dawn so enjoyable. Um, and furthermore, they have learned in those subsequent years how to further refine their vision yeah. for this style of horror Which games. I think is brilliant for them. Having this anthology idea is that they can take what they learn from each episode and make something new. I mean, House of Ashes uh, is the first one that sort of employs a, a movable camera. You know, for the first mm. time. Yeah, so hmm. it's a learned thing. You know, it, it's different in that regard. So cool. That's amazing. You know, that that changes it. And like I said, narratively speaking, the, the idea is it changes up what the last two games have done, which I said I will not spoil too much, but they didn't follow through on the promise of what they of what they were setting up. You know, whereas House of Ashes doesn't relent it, it gives you the idea that no this is it this is what it's about there's no yank the curtain and see that it's something else thing it's like I get that that's been like the big thing and even until dawn that's a big thing but in until dawn the curtain pull is to reveal something much more deadly you know whereas I think Man of Dan and Little Hope do the opposite it's offering up something deadly that then becomes decidedly less so 
I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, right. relatively speaking. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, that furthermore is why I'm going to. I think jumped right into House of Ashes, much like Raina said. She she uh, ordered a copy of it while we were <laughs> recording, and I think I'm definitely going to do the same as soon as we're done recording because I definitely am more in favor of something that has the same. I guess I can't speak to like it having the same buildup, but it has the same approach in that it doesn't just do the reverse of what Until Dawn did, right? Where it starts with something that is a massive threat and then you learn the reveal and you're like, well, you're basically undercutting all of that work that went into the first half for something that is lesser so, both in terms of what I would assume would be less terrifying and also not nearly as satisfying as it being a buildup to a more traditional monster moment or monster reveal or scare as it were um but yeah i i greatly enjoyed chatting about until dawn a game that i haven't really thought a lot about you know to Raina's credit she mentioned the fact that she thinks it's kind of an uh, unsung gem in a lot of ways for horror games where it has a newfound fan base but still like it doesn't get brought up in the same frequency as something like amnesia or uh alien isolation right but at the same time i think that it's a game that i'm going to probably revisit again and i'm going to try to do now with friends and stuff that aren't necessarily as in love with horror just because that couch co-op component i think for an evening with people is it has so much not only openness to being a communal experience but i think that it's just fun to like compare and contrast how people tend to lean with certain characters Uh, and the game offers up no shortage of satisfying moments based on those decisions right we'd kind of have said in our uh, variety of experiences with it that everything feels like it's earned because the same amount of dedication to a satisfying conclusion to certain arcs seems to be there for all the characters but as always um if anyone would like to share their thoughts on our uh, upcoming podcast episode topics you should feel free and we welcome you to tweet us at safe room pod on twitter to uh, share your thoughts and we will read it on the show and uh we of course appreciate people uh listening as yeah, always. and i think this is the one week where we can kind of give it out a little early we'll still do the announcement mm-hmm. on tuesday but next week uh, we are doing our games of the year so you know if you want to talk about the games of the year for you in terms of horror games by all means leave those comments out there and we will gladly include them when we are talking about ours next week absolutely and neil as always thank you for chatting horror with me for safe room thank you thank you for listening to another episode of safe room please consider following and rating the show on your preferred podcast platform and for updates on the show follow us on twitter at safe room pod thanks again for listening and we'll see you guys next week